Maybe one of the most moving experiences of my adult life came just a few years ago when I had the immense privilege of, of visiting the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. At the end of my nearly three and a half hour tour of that place, my visit concluded in a room that they call the Hall of Names. The Hall of Names serves as a memorial to each and every Jew who perished in the Holocaust. A place where their stories may be commemorated for generations to come. The circular hall that you can see in this picture, it houses an extensive collection of short biographies for each Holocaust victim. Watch this. Over two million pages are stored in the circular repository around the outer edge of the hall with room for six million in total. Narrative and, and, and stories, they, they have a way of drawing us into a reality that is not our own. Engaging our imaginations as we visualize life from another person's perspective. In, in fact, I, I have found that there are few things more powerful than a well-told story that captivates our minds, connects us to another reality, and causes us to think more deeply about life than maybe we have ever done before. And, and here's why I love the Bible. The, the, the Bible is, is not just a, a literary record of, of, of theological facts. It, it is not just a linear religious list of do's and don'ts. No, instead, all throughout the scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, and more specifically in the four gospels, the Bible records stories that Jesus told that would help draw the attention of the reader into the paramount obsession of Christ's life. The kingdom of heaven. It, it Maybe the most brilliant example of this comes from the book of Matthew. Where 23 different times, Jesus pulls his disciples aside to privately tell them stories and analogies and illustrations that would help demonstrate in vivid fashion the spiritual nature of the movement that he was birthing. And Jesus would often begin his stories with this statement. Now let me show you. Now let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that causes the dough to rise. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. A merchant looking for fine pearls. Or a net that has caught all kinds of, of different fish. It's simply put, the kingdom of heaven is the king's domain. It is an ever-growing ever-increasing sphere of authority and governance that fills the earth with the prerogative of heaven. And it issues within it an invitation for those who to believe to participate in its expansion. See, the kingdom of heaven is advanced when the rule, reign, and authority of Jesus is demonstrated on earth in a tangible way through your sphere of influence. 
For the prophets declared the king is coming, but the church declares the king is here. See, powerless Christianity is not the kingdom. A dead, lifeless faith, it is not the kingdom. Just following rules for the sake of rules, it is not the kingdom. Just attending church, it is not the kingdom. Saying a magic prayer at the altar, it is not the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not God sovereignly deciding to do whatever he wants to do without the participation of the church. The kingdom of God is a divine invitation into co-ruling and co-reigning with God in Christ Jesus. And it finds itself diametrically opposed to the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is, is realized in a dichotomous fashion. It's, it's a paradox wrapped within a paradigm. It's confusing to the natural mind, but the kingdom of God is both now and it is not yet. Just like you are saved and you are being saved. Just like you are righteous and you are being made righteous. The kingdom of God ushered in and inaugurated by the ministry of Christ Jesus has now been given to us. And it expands as we invite and agree with what God desires to do in and through our individual avenues and vocations. It is the kingdom of God crashing into the kingdom of us and us responding, God, not our way, but your way, not our will, but your will, not our kingdom, but your kingdom. God, have your way and ride in on the back of my obedience and submission into every sphere the sole of my foot would tread. And there is a not yet, for there will come a day where the clouds, they roll back like a scroll and with a great shout, Christ will descend. And at the great blast of a trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. And we will see the one that we pierced. And we will see the one who wore the crown of throne. And we will see the one whose side has, has a hole in it from the spear. And we will see the wounded lamb of the universe reconciling all things unto himself. And what will begin in that moment is the wedding banquet of the lamb, never to end for all of us eternity. We have a kingdom now and there is a kingdom that is not yet. So we don't talk a lot about the blessed hope in the church. Oh, that's going to be too weird. It's already weird. The son of God becomes the son of man, born of a virgin in the fullness of time, lives a sinless life and dies on a sinner's cross only for the father to raise him again on the third day, ascended into heaven and coming soon. It's already weird. But don't allow the enemy to convince you that tomorrow is promised for in fact it is not. We live on borrowed time. And there will come a day where we see him return in glory. We have a kingdom now. And there is a kingdom that is not yet. And Jesus commissions his disciples to preach the kingdom in Luke 9. He called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority. Power is the ability to do it. Authority is the legal right to conduct it. 
He called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons. Not some demons, not Snohomish demons, not Seattle demons, not Democrat demons, not Republican demons, not your in-law demons, all demons. He gave them authority. As I was, so are you. And he sent them to preach the kingdom. Not only did Jesus commission his disciples to preach the kingdom, he commissioned his disciples to pray the kingdom. Matthew 6, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Not only that, Jesus commissioned his disciples to perceive the kingdom. He tells his disciples, the kingdom is within you. The kingdom is around you. The kingdom is upon you. And when you begin to recognize that your job as a believer is to extend his kingdom into every one of your kingdoms, your life begins to take on a divine and a redemptive purpose. Out of the 23 different parables Jesus tells in the book of Matthew, the story from chapter 25 is, is probably my favorite. Jesus has taken his disciples to the Mount of Olives. He is looking out over at the temple and he says there is coming a day where every single one of these stones is going to be turned over and ain't nothing going to be left. And not only that, they're going to crucify me on a tree. And disciples are shook and they're rattled. How could this be? We gave up everything to follow you. What do you mean? This is our temple. What do you mean you're not going to kick the Romans out of our land? What do you mean you're not going to enshrine yourself as the Messiah in this moment on earth and restore to us a political kingdom? What do you mean? And Jesus pulls the 12 together and tells them again, I am granting you something so much more significant than political victory. I am granting you something so much more significant than a physical temple. I am giving you an unshakable kingdom in the midst of a world that is shaking and quaking with fear. You will be seated on the rock that is higher than you. And in Matthew 25, that brilliant story begins. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. The domain of God, the canopy of his authority and glory is like a man who called his own servants. Can we just talk about calling for a moment this morning? Your career is what you're paid for. Your calling is what you're made for. If scripture says your calling and your election, it is sure. Scripture says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Scripture says his calling, it is irrevocable and without repentance. But if I could, let me challenge you for just a moment this morning. What you are called to be is so much more important than what you are called to do. Our culture has made idols out of individual callings. And in doing so, we have baptized a generation into perpetual 
spiritual anxiety about missing out on what God has called them to do. I'm here to tell you today, if you'll focus on what God has called you to be, you won't miss out on one thing that God has called you to do. And what has God called us to be? Unified in the faith mature in the spirit, righteous in God, rooted in love. And if my focus is first on becoming what Christ died for me to be, then it's nearly impossible for me to miss out on successfully doing what he created me to do. How do I determine that which I am called to do? For me, often, I look for the evidence of his goods. It is not just that the kingdom is like a man who calls his servants. The kingdom is like a man who equips his servants with the goods for the task that he has asked them to do. There was a man by the name of Eric Liddell. He was born in 1902 in northern China to Scottish missionaries who were serving God on the mission field by spreading the gospel to the nation of China and beyond. Eric committed his life to Christ at an early age and would serve alongside his parents as missionaries until the ripe old age of 22 when he had the opportunity to compete in the 1924 Olympic Games being held in Paris, France. See, Eric was a missionary, an incredible evangelist, but he was also an athlete. And from a young age, he had been recognized for his immense athletic ability. See, Eric would go on to win the 400-meter gold medal for Great Britain. And the nation of China was so happy that a boy who technically had been born in their country won gold, that they actually claimed him in their history books as China's first Olympic champion. Did you know that the movie Chariots of Fire is based off of Eric's life? When Eric competed in the Olympics, watch this. He caught flack from religious folks who said that if he really loved God, he should be evangelizing the lost instead of competing in these silly games. And the most powerful scene in that movie is when Eric responds to his critics by saying this, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It begs the question today, where is the goodness and the pleasure of God most prominently displayed in your life? Because you were created to enjoy the affirmation and the pleasure of the Father above. Hear me, the way that you're hardwired isn't special to you because it's always been the way that you've been. But trust me, the unique capacities and abilities that God has placed in your life is exactly what this region needs. And when you come most alive to who God created you to be, it becomes most beneficial to those around you. Now watch verse 15, it gets even better. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another he gave only one to each according to his own ability, and then immediately he went on a journey. 
And I know what you're thinking because I thought it too. But that's not fair. I was reading this this week. Literally, I had that thought. Each servant should have been given the exact same amount. Come on, God, what are you doing? And the Lord spoke to me so clear. He said, Russell, I care exactly 0% about your world's definition of fairness. If you think the kingdom of God exists as some sort of socialist utopia where God hands out prepackaged rations to each of his children, you have grossly misunderstood this book. Do you know why God gives different stuff to different people? Because you were created with unique capacities and a unique grace that speaks to the type of person God is forming you to be. And it is the blending of our uniqueness in this room that makes the body of Christ so beautiful and brilliant. Oh, you must reject the temptation to compare the weight of your talent against the weight of someone else's. The only thing comparison will do is steal the joy of being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. You were born an original. Don't you dare die a copy. See, God has the responsibility to give it. But see, we have the responsibility to receive it. I often wonder to myself how many gifts wrapped in opportunity and hard work are lying under the tree of my life just waiting for me to take the initiative to unwrap them and put them to use. See, Paul says it this way in Romans 12. He says, we each have gifts according to the measure of grace we have received. See, some of the most profoundly broken people you will ever meet will also be the most gifted. Why? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And and this is why God's specialty is taking the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It actually says the foolishness of God is wiser than the best wisdom of man. It's why God will take Paul, a terrorist to the church, and make him the greatest evangelistic voice in the first century. It's why God will take the drug addict, make him sober, and give him a platform they could have never created in their own power, just so God can prove, I am sovereign, I have the ability to call, and at the end of the day, it is my opinion about that person's value in life that matters most. Oh, God has placed this treasure in earthen vessels. It doesn't make sense to our natural mind, and in fact, it offends our flesh. It offended the religious leaders that he would sit with sinners. It offended the religious leaders that he would forgive the woman caught in the act of prostitution. It offended the sinners that he was known for hanging out with the tax collectors. But Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, not as a doctor for the healthy, but as a doctor for the sick. And the more broken your life, the more glory he gets when by his spirit he sovereignly turns it around and uses your trauma as a testimony to set somebody else free. Comparing levels of grace and gifting is like comparing levels of debt to figure out who is more important. It makes no sense. 
When Maria and I got married, we didn't need to worry about a prenup. We were both worth negative money. My only hope was that if she ever left me, she'd take my student loans with her. I'm not competing with Maria out of a jealousy for her area of grace. Maria isn't competing with me out of a jealousy for my area of grace. We recognize this for what it is, a reflection of God's undeserved generosity that now we are responsible to steward. Don't ever get it twisted. Your gifting, your talent, and your resource is not what you have earned on your behalf. It is what he has earned on your behalf. Verse 16, then he who had received the five talents, he went and traded them, he made five more. Likewise, the one who had two gained two more also. But he who received one, he went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Wasn't his money. Wasn't his neighbor's money. Wasn't his daddy's money. It was his Lord's. I want you to see this today. Every time God made covenant with man, it came with a mandate to multiply. Let me prove it to you. Genesis 1:28, the first covenant ever made in all of scripture. God says to Adam, "Be fruitful and Genesis 9:1. After God destroys the earth with a flood, he makes covenant with Noah. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and Genesis 17, God makes covenant with Abraham. He says, "Between me and you, I will multiply you exceedingly. Genesis 35 and 11, God makes covenant with Jacob. He says, I am the God Almighty. You will be fruitful and multiply. Leviticus 26, 9, God makes covenant with Israel. He says, for I will look on you favorably. I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you and confirm my covenant. See, although the amount that you have been given may be different than the person that you're sitting next to, the expectation for your life is the same. When the master returns, have I multiplied that which he has entrusted me with? See, what I have received is God's gift to me, but how I develop it is my gift to him. You know, this week I uh, spent some time in, in Maui I just said, Lord, if you want me to plant a beach church, I'll wear a grass skirt, a coconut bra, you name it. Here I am, Lord, send me to this unreached people group. He said, no, go back to Snohomish. <laughs> I said, it was worth a try. You can't blame me for trying. But the reason I was in Maui was for this. A few months ago, I was scrolling on social media, and one of my buddies posted that there was going to be some national leaders flying into Maui, and they were going to be hosting a conference on how to develop and better communicate and better preach the art of homiletics. And as soon as I saw it, the Lord spoke to me and asked me this question, are you still teachable? 
I calculated the amount of hours I've preached in full-time ministry over the last 12 years. It is well north of 10,000. And when I read that clip on social media, the Lord spoke to me. Are you still teachable? And I thought to myself, man, the best thing that I can offer those around me and maybe the best thing that I can offer back to God is a heart of humility that refuses to shift into cruise control because I feel like I have made it. Instead, let me submit my talent to some other seasoned leaders, receive instruction, critique, and feedback because I refuse to coast on what God gave me yesterday. I need him more today. I'll need him more the next day. I want to be a continual learner because there is a mandate on my life to multiply. And maybe the great tragedy of Christianity in the West is that the longer we walk with God, the more that we are convinced we can walk without Him. Oh, I made it. I'm good. Oh, I've been in church 30 years. I figured it all out. Look what I did. I planted. Look at these awards. Look at these accomplishments. Look at all these types of things. I was speaking at a conference in LA just a few weeks ago, and they gave me this big award, this big statue. I had to pack it in my carry-on luggage. TSA almost tased me on the way through security. I got home. I placed it on my dresser, and I was looking at it before I went to bed, and the Lord dropped a verse in my heart. This is dung compared to the riches and the glory of knowing Jesus. I say, Lord, next time, give me something more encouraging because I worked hard for that one. So just, but I think maybe the number one thing that will attract the favor of God in your life is a heart of humility that approaches him and approaches others, not with something to teach, but with something to learn. God, I don't want to go another day relying on my own self-sufficiency. I refuse to start in the spirit and continue in the flesh. I know that there is a mandate on my life to multiply. It is not a selfish, arrogant, fleshly, ambitious desire. It is a holy, consecrated devotion to a master who is returning and looking for an investment that has multiplied for those of you who are blessed enough to have retirement accounts if every year for 15 years straight that thing shrinks instead of growing all of a sudden you're on the phone with your money manager help me understand why this ain't been multiplied help me understand why my strategy is off help me understand why my money ain't working for me anymore but how often do we treat God like a distant money manager where we've parked our money our talent our treasure our resource our intellect our relationships into perpetual neutrality and then wondered where our first love and passion has gone. You have a mandate to multiply. In Matthew 25, all three servants received the same instruction, but only two followed through on the orders. The one who receives a single talent digs a hole and buries, not his money, his Lord's money. Hear me, friend. When you don't understand the significance of your gift, 
you'll bury it in isolation instead of planting it in community. And God won't bless what you bury. There's a reason we call it a church plant, not a church burial. Because there's a difference between what you plant and what you bury. Seeds are planted. Bodies are buried. Don't mistake the soil of your life for a tomb. It's not a grave. It's a garden. And this garden is just waiting for you to plant the talent that God has equipped you with. Now watch verse 19. This is where it gets good. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. So he who received five came and brought five more, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five, and look, I have gained five more. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You was faithful over a few. I will make you ruler over many. I am struck by the way, the master addresses this individual. Well done, good and faithful servant. Can I tell you, the highest title in the kingdom is not apostle, it's not prophet, it's not evangelist, it's not miracle worker, it's not conference speaker, it's not best-selling book, it's not most generous giver at the altar. The highest title you will ever receive in the kingdom is servant. And what we are living for is that one statement of affirmation when we cross eternity shore. Well done, good and faithful. Oh friend, one life will soon be passed. It is only what is done for Christ that will last. And what I am living for is the reward of a God who stores up treasures in place where moth and rust cannot destroy. I am living for eternity. I am living for the reward of the high king of heaven and what he calls me on my best day is a servant of the most high. Now watch. The one who had two came to him and said, Lord, you gave me two, I've gained two more. And in like manner, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few, I'm gonna make you ruler over many. Now watch, he gives seed to the sower. He gives resources to the dreamer. Watch the principle. God can't release my request for more until I first have the faith to use the little I've got. I got a little lunch, okay. God can use it to feed 5,000. I got a little oil in my jar, good. God can use it to fill every vessel in this house. I just got a little sling with some little rocks, great. God can use it to turn the tide of a war for the history and the next generation of a nation. Do you know the only prayer in all of the New Testament that Jesus never answered was the prayer from his disciples when they said, Lord, increase our faith? He responds to them and says, no, 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 no. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be ye removed and cast into the sea. See, while we are praying for increase, Jesus is praying for our faithfulness. Because faithfulness with what you got is always the trigger to release what God has next. Let me end here. Verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew he would be a real hard, difficult man. 
reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. So I went and I, I hid my talent in the ground. So look, there you have what is yours. Fear kills your capacity to multiply. And when you're afraid, you'll resort to bearing who God created you to be instead of planting the seed he has placed in your hand. You know, just this week while I was in Maui, I, I had this moment where I had this like rush of anxiety and all of these racing thoughts connected to the elementary school. And I know sometimes when we launch initiatives, it's like, yeah, it's from a place of faith and it's gonna work and we have total confidence in God. But most of the time, faith looks like to me being scared to death and doing it anyways. And that about sums up how I feel about this elementary school launch. Scared to death, money we don't have in a building that we don't have, believing that God will send all the resources because he will supply everything that I'm in need of. And in the midst of having this rush of anxiety about the elementary school, all of a sudden, I get a text message from one of the members of our church. And they said, Russ, I was walking into my son's room. He had to be maybe seven, eight years old. And I opened up his little journal that he likes to draw in. And he drew a picture that I thought you might find interesting. And I wanted to share it with you today. It was right in the middle of my rush of anxiety about the elementary school. And so they sent me this picture. Pull it up on the screen if you can. Pursuit West. The best church. That's my Tesla out in front. And yes, I do identify as a stick figure standing right there by the front door. But I got this picture and I thought to myself in that moment, no, this is exactly the right thing to do. This is exactly the reason why we're doing it. I want every six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old in this community to love the church they're at, love the school that they belong to, get raised in the ways of the Lord so that they would never depart from it. And I just thought to myself, I'm going to use the little faith I have. Let's launch out and raise our kids in revival. Now, this is very interesting. The servant says, Lord, I know that you expect to reap where you have not sown. If you will be faithful to plant that which God has given you, you will soon discover that you as well reap in places you did not sow. Hear me. The best way I can describe it is this. God rewards faithfulness with favor. And favor like a magnet will pull things into your life and your purview that you never worked for, never expected, and definitely don't deserve. 
Friend, we have a mandate to multiply. I can't afford to live a small life and neither can you. It dishonors God. It dishonors those around me. And it robs me of the blessing that God so desperately desires to pour out on our lives. You've got a mandate. This church has a mandate. That elementary school's got a mandate. I've got a mandate. And together, we're going to use whatever God has given us. Whether it's five, two, one, or tenth of one percent. We're going to plant it into the soil of God's faithfulness. And you and I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Come on, would you stand with me as we close this morning? Come on, let me pray for you in faith today. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray for your ever-present help in our time of need. God, we respond to the invitation to be kingdom-expanding individuals in every sphere of influence that we would set our foot in. God, I pray that we would be more than observers of kingdom activity around us. We would participate in the ever-growing canopy of your glory and power that is covering this region. I break the fear off of your life now in Jesus' name that tries to dictate the outcomes of the talent that God has given you. And I say in Jesus' name, you will be everything that God knows you to be. During that process, you will do everything that God has asked you to do. And as the net result of your faithfulness, friend, you will reap in fields that you did not sow. Oh God, by your own power, grace, and mercy, would you enable us to multiply the talent that you so graciously have entrusted us with. We commit these things now into your hands. And in the mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.